Lee within your head. And today I'm so excited. I have a guest and she can really, she's a master of mental health. Her name is Chris Goats and she's a licensed professional counselor and a supervisor. And she spent the last 20 years working with people coming out of the sex industry, the criminal justice system and serving the indigent. And that's really the harder side of the business, in my opinion. You have to have a passion for working with people who suffered from severe trauma and struggle with addictions to be able to fill that role. And I know, I know you have a passion. Yes, uh huh. I sure do. <laughs> so how did how did this passion get started? It's, it's not something you just wake up and say, "Those are the people I want to work with." Oh, my gosh, it sure wasn't. Um, I actually came out of a marriage and family uh, private practice, kind of a uh, marriage and family clinic. And so um, I, I kind of went through um, some changes, and it required me uh, to, to move and to, and to do some things differently. And I was offered um, a position at uh, the largest outpatient facility in Dallas, and it just so happened to be um, in a part of town where there was a large population of, um, you know, homeless uh, homelessness. There was a large uh, homelessness population as well as um, a facility that was actually working with um, uh, formerly incarcerated uh, persons who were formerly incarcerated. And so um, I will confess that for, for the first three days, I was kind of in a state of shock. And I thought, um, these people are going to eat me alive. And then after the third day, I thought to myself, you know what? I got this job under really unusual circumstances. So whoever walks through that door, I'm supposed to help. And once I took that attitude, it was just a complete uh, game changer for me. Well, you know, I literally, you I just, yeah, I, I, I love working with that population. You touch on a really good point, though, because a lot of times the first time we're exposed to something, we feel fear, you know. Oh, my gosh, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how to talk to those people. I don't know, you know, what's going to happen to me. And it sounds like you came to the conclusion you talk to those people the same way to talk to everybody else. Exactly. I mean, we, we treat everyone with respect, right? And so as long as we do that and we are uh, act out of our authentic selves, then it's just a win-win. So in that role, and I know you've moved on and, and we'll talk more about that, but, but in that role, what do you feel like that, you, how did you make the, the biggest impact? Um. I think it was, uh, well, for example, in, uh, with this particular population, there is a huge stigma um, to even get counseling. For example, um, you know, well, if, if, if my family knows that I'm seeing you, you know, a therapist, then they're going to think I'm crazy. Or anyone that comes to this facility, you know, is this is the loony bin. We're, we're crazy. And so for me, it was kind of normalizing it. I mean, think about all the movies out there, um, you know, that, that kind of make a joke about, um, you know, seeing a psychiatrist or a therapist. I mean, you know, where I come from, everybody, you know, you, you almost brag about seeing a therapist because it's just part of your overall health. You know, it's just something that we do. Um, to keep us uh, moving forward in life. And so for me, it was normalizing it, kind of normalizing it with this population and just helping them to realize that, um, 
you know, they were put on this earth for a reason. And, you know, they're not nothings and nobodies, as so many of them would say, but they actually have a purpose and identity. That is huge when you can validate those people and accept them for what they what they have to offer. And everybody has something to offer. And I think we we tend to lose sight of that, particularly when we're in a situation like we're in today. It's exactly every day. I have a rule. I do not turn the TV on before five o'clock because I can get sucked in and Mm -hmm. I can. Once I get sucked in, I get those negative thoughts, those little ants. You know all about those little automatic negative thoughts that go running through your head. Mm-hmm. Yes, we all get them from time to time, don't we? <laughs> we do. And then we start looking for somebody to blame. Okay, am I going to blame China for the virus? No. But that negative thinking really does it kind of is where we, it's self-defeating and we all experience it. So in these times, how do you think that population, that the underserved is what, one way I look at it, those that are really, they're out on the streets, they're homeless. Um, how do you think that they're dealing with it? I can't imagine. I mean, they're already depressed, um, you know, struggling having to go from, you know, I'm just sitting in here thinking about the resources here in, in our area, you know, a DFW, and, and many of them, I think, go from one homeless facility to another just to get a meal. And so one facility may have breakfast, then they have to go to another one for lunch. I can't imagine if you're staying in a huge area with homeless people, you know, that house, you know, maybe you're on your mats and there's what, 100, 200 people in a room? I mean, I can't imagine the fears or even those in a nursing facility, you know, that maybe don't have a family to go to. Um, it, it has to be increasing their anxiety and or depression exponentially. I agree. And I know so many of us today are worried about an economic recession. And I'm a lot more worried about a social recession because we're yes. the physical distancing is is creating distance between everybody and i think of people in a nursing home that can't see their family and that's what they they wake up that's their purpose i get to see my son today i get to see my daughter today and you take that away and that's got to leave someone feeling pretty low that's an excellent point, Lee. I, I completely agree with you. I feel that, you know, and, and what's so confusing is across the United States, I just, we're all doing different things. Florida has just come down, and I think in the last day, and issued a lockdown. And when you think about that, what do you think, and I don't know, but what do you think the average age of people living in Florida is? Oh, my gosh. Do you know? I mean, I, I'm young. I'm, I, well, no, that would be older because Absolutely. a lot of people go there to retire, right? Absolutely. So that's confusing. And, you know, even if you have parents that are there, the amount of worry that you get about them because they haven't addressed it the same way that we have in Texas. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I know the answer because I know I don't. But I think that that uncertainty makes life in general 
a lot more difficult. Right, exactly. I, I was um, dialoguing with a group of women last night, and one of them actually lives in Florida, and she had confessed that, you know, I've already burst burst into tears twice just watching the news. I can't do it anymore. Um, so I know it's really taking a toll um, on her, and this is someone who has resources. Imagine um, the kind of toll it is taking on someone who doesn't. I can't even imagine because resources do open up a tremendous amount of help. Um, and just knowing that you have those resources, it, I, I think, would make you feel a, a lot more confident. Yes, I agree. I agree. You know, because we, we are aware of where we can go. Um, there are means of, you know, some of the larger organizations are offering um you know, you can meet with a doctor online and kind of go through a um, a testing of sorts for COVID-19 without necessarily, you can at least um, go through the symptom list uh, to kind of do a self-check with, with someone online. And then you, then you have knowledge. And knowledge is, for me, knowledge has always been power because then I know what, mm -hmm. what I need to do and how I'm going to mm -hmm. do it. So, mm -hmm. you know, we talked about the average age of people in Florida, I'm, I, you know, when I think about the homeless population in Dallas, and I've got my favorites um, that that I've they've been homeless for the last five years, some of them since I moved to Dallas. But there's a population that's really growing in Dallas, and that's the teenagers. Yes, yes, that's so true. That's so true, and I have noticed um, an increase. Uh, with mental illness uh, with this population. Um, there's certainly an increase with homeless teens that are uh, couch surfing. I know this just in terms of dealing with some of the therapists that work uh, within the school system, but also um, with, with adolescents who come from good families, um, younger, younger girls that are being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder or that are having psychotic breaks at 13 and 14, and then I'm, I'm seeing an increase with young boys that are already um, sexually acting out or maybe have sexual compulsions, and a lot of these adolescents are coming from some pretty severe trauma sometimes, and or maybe they are um, involved with CPS or they're, they're um, um, you know, with a foster family, and sometimes their symptoms um, may be so severe that the families don't even want to deal with them anymore. Um, some of our facilities are reporting that they're just being abandoned. These adolescents are being abandoned and left there and never to be picked up by their family members. That's devastating to think that. Yes. You know, and honestly, I believe that everybody will experience trauma in their life, but I don't think a teenager living on the street should ha have experienced that level of trauma? I agree. I agree. It, it is. And, and, you know, this is our future. We have to start to step in um, and, and come up with some ways to address these issues uh, more thoroughly than we have been. Well, and you make a really good point. And I know that you, back in 2015, 
you started teaching the Dallas police and some other local police departments um, through their mental health orientation, but your teaching focused on mood and thought and personality disorders and, you know, educating them because a lot of people are so uneducated that they can't wrap their hands around it. Right. Right. It's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, with the, with the homeless population, for example, you know, one of the, one of the things that I try to um, make clear to the officers is, for example, if you are schizophrenic and you're hearing voices, you may be hearing more than one voice at a time. You could be hearing two or three voices at a time, and hence that may be keeping you awake. And then if you can't find a place to sleep and you've been awake for three or four nights, you're going to hallucinate anyway. And so yelling at them or screaming at them isn't going to help. It's just going to make them more confused. Um, and certainly you think about <clears throat> some of the backgrounds that our um, formerly incarcerated uh, persons come from. And I'm not saying that it's okay to commit crimes, but... So many of them, I mean, the story I would hear just over and over and over was just the severe trauma um, that these persons were experiencing, you know, incest and rape by, you know, mothers, fathers, uncles, brothers, sisters, um, um, just horrible physical abuse. And so many of them, and I, I heard this story just over and over, would run away from home as teenagers, and then they get picked up by, you know, other gang members or, you know, Jamaican drug drug gangs, and then they would be forced, you know, to um, commit crimes at a young age, but yet almost brainwashed in a way because, you know, there was this pretense of love and acceptance that they didn't have uh, within their families of origin. And, you know, when you think about the age of those people, the going out, the teenagers, and you think about it from my perspective, I think about it from the brain. And the, the brain is not fully developed until you're in your mid to late 20s. The very last part of the brain that gets fully developed is your frontal cortex. That's the part of your brain you need to make good decisions, to think through, to, to think about consequences. As a teenager, you're using the amygdala, and that's the emotional response part of your brain. That's the impulsiveness. So the decisions that they're making are, are not good decisions, and you can't blame them for that. They're not hardwired that way yet. And there's four things that puts a brain into a dysregulated state. One is genetics. Two is physical trauma. And if they're being physically abused, that changes the way the brain's wiring and firing. The third is emotional trauma. And if you're being left in a mental health hospital, your folks aren't even coming to get you. That's pretty emotional traumatic trauma. And then the last thing is stress. And in today's world, and it will probably be this way for another month, everybody is stressed out. Oh, yes. That's an excellent point, Lee. You, you really nailed that one on the head. You've reminded me of a couple of situations where I'm, I'm thinking of someone who, um, just along the lines of what you just described, um, trauma since, you know, infancy, um, was never held, was never rocked, was left 
uh, to scream and cry, um, a lot of reactive attachment disorder stuff going on, and diagnosed with uh, bipolar. And we kind of determined, um, myself and the psychiatrist, that like you say, the brain can't develop. And so we thought that maybe the phases of mania and, and um, being awake for long periods of time and and then sleeping was disrupted because of the trauma. And so as a toddler and or, you know, elementary age uh, school child um, didn't develop the normal sleeping patterns of, of someone who maybe grew up with, um, you know, no trauma. And uh, so hence the patterns of, of mania and depression because the uh, sleep patterns had been so grossly disrupted. Does wow. that kind of fit in with what you were describing? It seems like it would. It does. And you bring up the most important point for brain health, and that is sleep. All day long, those little neurons and dendrites are wiring and firing, and they're creating this toxic waste. And the only time that these little glial cells come out and clean that mess up is when you're asleep. So if, oh. if that natural balance isn't happening, that, brace, that brain is staying in a dysregulated state. Amazing. And then if you add to that drugs or alcohol, uh. and then how the, the brain just stops at that point, and then you have to, it, it, it like doesn't grow. Because it's the the drugs and alcohol, correct? That is correct. And, you know, a lot of people think that people that are addicts, you know, they just make a lot of bad choices. And amen to that. Yes, they do. But addiction is a brain disease. And that's something that whether it's drugs, alcohol, social media, they're so the world of addiction has changed dramatically. I'm more worried about young people growing up and their addiction to their phone and their social media accounts. Right, exactly. I mean, and it certainly takes away um, any kind of true intimacy because there just isn't any face-to-face -face interaction. And so, how can they learn to communicate? Um, when when that intimacy is lacking, that capacity to um, have face-to-face -face dialogue. Even persons my age, I'm, I'm noticing um, sometimes those people who are more reliant upon texting may not be good face-to-face uh, uh, -face communicators. Well, and they, you know, a lot of them, they, they lack the whole social cueing, Um because they're so busy looking at their phone, they're not thinking about, well, those, that person is standing there with their arms crossed. And a lot of times, and with homeless people, it's their body language, you know, and that sends a message. And I think nobody wants to stand on a corner with a sign written on a piece of a cardboard box asking for money. Right. I agree totally. We definitely need to come up with more resources. It's it's kind of like, you know, what we say in the world of addiction, there will never be enough of us. There's always going to be an addict out there for someone to help. I kind of feel the same way about um, the homeless population, the indigent, um, uh, formerly incarcerated. I, yes, we have some good resources out there, but um, the population just continues to grow year by year by year. Um, we need more. We need to come up with more services 
um, to, to serve this population. Well, and, and, you know, I think a lot of people are not aware of the resources that are out there. They feel overwhelmed. They feel helpless. They feel like, you know, there's nobody to help me. I have no money. Um, I can't afford help. And what I hear you say is there is help for people out there that need it. Yes, um, definitely. You know, for example, we have Mental Health America. Um, I did a program with them earlier in the week. That's kind of a, a good go-to. I mean, there's a Mental Health America in every every city. Um, they're a good resource, especially uh, for the indigent population. Um, we have entities, you know, certainly homeless uh, shelters and um, uh, various facilities that um, employ the formerly incarcerated and or house um, the homeless. But, again, the populations are just um, growing and growing. So, you know, we need more. Um, but uh, we, we do have resources. It's just helping those persons tap into them and to know how to tap into them. Well, and this is a question for you. Do you think that everybody, that a lot of the homeless people are afraid to tap in to those resources? I do, but that's just my opinion. Yes, um, yes and no. Uh, some of them are glad to have the resources, um, but yeah, I think there is a lot of fear. Um, again, that stigma plays into it. You know, what are people going to think? Oh, well, I must be crazy or... Um, you know, sometimes it's maybe they're not so psychotic. Their issues may be more emotional, and then they hesitate to be with persons that may be worse off than them because that's hard hard on them emotionally. You make a really good point there that they, and a lot of times our self-awareness is not so high, and we may think, well, we're okay. We're, you know, I'm okay. I don't want to be around people that aren't okay. And maybe you're all in the same boat. Nobody's okay. Mm -hmm. And it's okay mm -hmm. not to be okay. That's if right. that I would like to get, get out today is that it is okay not to be okay. Yes, that's good. That's good. You know, and sometimes just making, I used to have to tell people, you know, keep in mind that that person you're dealing with may not be as stable as you are. You know, you can't always just take everything um, at face value and assume that they're attacking you. They may not be as stable as you are. Um, and sometimes um, getting people to realize that could be kind of a game changer in the way that they interacted with someone. So are there some red flags or some warning signs that that you can point out to people to look for? Well, yeah, um, in terms of when somebody's um, digressing, so to speak, in terms of when they may need a, a higher level of care? Yes. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, if, if someone's having a psychotic break, that's pretty easy to see. You know, they will be... Um, Dialoguing, they may be interacting with um, uh, uh, stimuli, you know, outside stimuli that is not really there. Um, and so, um, 
you know, you could, those are the people that you may see kind of dancing on the street corner or, or having a conversation with someone who's not there, looking as though they're having a conversation with someone that's not there, or um, someone who may, you know, have that constant kind of stream of thought, um, but just goes from um, one thought to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, sometimes people who have pressured speech, um, very rapid kind of pressured speech could be exhibiting signs of um, mania that you might see with bipolar disorder. So, yes, there's definitely some signs. Um, the person who's depressed, you know, they may have uh, changes in sleep patterns and or eating habits, uh, weight gain, weight loss. Um, they may start kind of... Um, Exhibiting signs of, uh, you know, suicidal ideation. Yeah, there's definitely signs. And as as a a family, maybe that a family member is starting to demonstrate some of those signs. They're maybe they're socially isolating. Maybe they they're not eating. Maybe they're. You can tell. You can just tell that they're not right. How do you approach that person? Well, it's trying to get, you know, get them as many wraparound supports as possible. You know, hey, I see you're withdrawing from the family, you know. Um, you know, you want them to feel supported. You don't ever want them, you know, to feel attacked. You know, you're important to us. You know, we love you. Um, I love you. You know, what can I do to, um, you know, get you back? I want to, you know, I want to interact with you more, and I see that you're withdrawing. Um, I can think of a, a patient who came in once and the psychiatrist was so alarmed. She said, this person's so depressed. I'm afraid they're going to die. They're just going to die because they're so depressed. Um, this person is here with their, their family member. Can I bring them to you? And can you sit down and come up with some solutions as to how we can get this person acclimated again into the community? And so we begin to sat, sit down and kind of discuss some some things that maybe the person liked, um, trying to get them out, um, even trying to just get them out of their room and into the house is sometimes a problem. Um, I can certainly think of family members that called and said, you know, we can't even get our loved one to come out and eat dinner. We have to slide the plate underneath the door. So um, just being very, very supportive, um, very gentle, not getting angry, and then, of course, trying to get them on um, any kind of medication management that might, you know, elevate their mood enough so that they could start to work with some of the underlying factors. So, you know, I mentioned earlier that brainwaves are just as genetic as anything else. And brainwaves cause depression, cause anxiety. So usually there's some... There is some family dynamics going on that we really need to kind of think about I think you know and how that makes it harder on the family as a whole don't you think yeah I, I would definitely agree with that um, yeah you, you got me thinking about that I, I may need to think about that a little longer I'm, I'm I'm trying to think of some scenarios where that's an issue yeah because if if there are some um, issues within the family they may not even recognize it to begin with, they they may may not recognize any of the issues that their loved ones going through to even address it, and so it gets unaddressed. 
because that's their norm. I've had some right. say, you know, I, I'm like, you sound like you're anxious. You have anxiety? No. I'm like, with everything that I'm looking at says your anxiety. Well, this is the way I've always been. Wow. And the same with depression. It seems like that, you know, if you if you've always and that's what you grew up seeing, if your right. mom would take her dinner and and go to her room, or maybe not even eat dinner, or your dad, then you think, you know, that's something to, that's something really good to think about. And we may, you know, we might think about that and come back to that. Right. Um, right. But, I I can. Th- Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. You please. Oh, um, the phone was cutting in and out just a little bit, so forgive me there. Um, yeah, I, I'm thinking of a scenario where um, a little girl grew up. I, I can think of a, a young gentleman as well um, with their parents constantly in the bedroom because the parent was uh, depressed. And so the only time the child could bond with the parent was to go into that dark bedroom. And I had one patient who literally, I think, bonded with darkness, um, not so much the mother, but with the, the darkness in the room where the mother was. And um, as she got older in her uh, 20s, her way of, you know, of, of, of kind of soothing herself was to come home to her apartment, shut the blinds, turn off the lights, crank up the headbanger music, and that was how she would just kind of soothe herself, was to sit in that darkness and that kind of insanity of, of you know, loud, angry music, if you will. And then she even would fantasize about um, in, engaging with uh, this dragon that she had, I guess, developed um as a child, you know, just um, in her imagination. That, so that certainly, is, That yeah. is a really great thing to talk about a little bit more. Let's take a little break and we'll come back and I'd like to learn more about that. Do you struggle with knowing the right food for your lifestyle? Is there really a one right way to eat? As a chronic dieter, I was always so confused by the food rules and the fad diets. Where to even start? That's why I decided to go into health coaching. As your health coach, I will help you find the solution that is right for you. I will help you find balance. Unlike most dietitians and nutritionists, I focus on a whole person approach, not just food. I address stress, sleep patterns, underlying root issues, and so many other contributing factors to health. And as a mental illness survivor, I love talking about ways to fire up brain health. If you're interested in learning more and maybe even a complimentary consultation, contact me at www.sparkingwholeness.com or message me on Instagram through the handle sparkingwholeness. And now let's get back to the show.
You know, Chris, you made such a good point with your story about the young lady. And, and I see that so often. I see clients that they think they're going to their comfort zone where they feel safe, but actually they're going into a danger zone because they're isolating. They're trying to develop coping skills. And sometimes when you go in that room and you get your head banging music going and you just can't feel anything. And I've had clients tell me, well, that's why I cut myself. I just wanted to feel something. Mm, wow. Yeah, and you, you can kind of see the connection between her childhood experience, you know, having to go into a dark room in order to be with mother, but mother wasn't present at all, and how that little girl developed this, this whole imaginative dialogue with a dragon that she actually named darkness, and then how that carries into her adult life where, you know, after a hard day at work, she comes home, you know, cranks up the headbanger music and engages in, you know, and sometimes even writing dark poetry about her, you know, um, imaginative adventures, you know, riding on the dragon darkness in her darkened room, no lights on with the headbanger music, you know. And so this is something that kind of spun out of control um, from childhood and resulted, like you stated, um, in just uh, inadequate uh coping skills that really weren't helping her at all or helping your patients at all, as you had pointed out. Well, you know, when you think about, I think a lot about self-care and the populations that we've talked about, the homeless, the the people that have been, you know, incarcerated. Um, how about even the military veterans that come back disabled with different, a lot of PTSD? Self-care is not in their vocabulary, or if it is, it's a bottle of booze, and a, or with a younger teenager, it's social media. Um, but that's not what self care is about. How do how have you introduced self care to the populations you've worked with? Well, you're spot on, and I think the more wraparound supports um, you can get, the better. Um, certainly, doing like daily journaling. Um, writing out your thoughts, uh, and if you're, if you, uh, have a relationship with a higher power, then certainly, uh, journaling, uh, with your, with your higher power. Um, learning to kind of intuitively, uh, trust your gut and listen, you know, to that, that inner voice. Um, getting in with some good support groups, you know, whether it's your, um, AANACA groups or whether it's a, a church group or just um, a strong group of friends with whom you can have, you know, deep and meaningful dialogue. Um, but you're right, so many, especially the homeless, you know, trying to get them with stable supports, you know, utilizing the um, any kind of therapeutic services they may have, utilizing any um, groups that they can attend, just getting them the supports they need and as often as they can do it. Um, I think that's super important. It's important for us, you know, who, who know these things, those of us who know these things, to have these supports within our system. I mean, we can't, um, you know, be the lone ranger, so to speak, and, and just manage on our own. I mean, we have to have supports as well. So how much more so for those persons who have PTSD or, you know, who are on the front lines of battle? That's certainly something that we discuss 
within the police departments and the FBI because, you know, there's that sense of, oh, well, we have to be strong. You know, we, we can't get, you know, let anyone know that we need help or that we're struggling because it's just this expectation of you have to be strong. And so we're trying to kind of break that myth as well, even with, with first, first responders. Well, the first responders, I have such a high level of respect for, and, and even more today because they're not getting any type of break. It's, it's just nonstop. But the people that are driving the trucks nonstop to put groceries in the stores because we're all maybe buying a little more than we need. Um, it, right. is, it is a community effort, and it is impacting us all. But when I think of first responders, and they, I watched the news last night and what's going on in New York City, it almost put me into tears. They were interviewing one doctor. When was the last time you slept? I don't know. I don't know when I slept. Um, that's pushing things. Right. Well, and I know that, like, even within my own organization, Acadia, we just uh, appointed a person to kind of oversee first responders across the nation. Um, and he's a former uh, chief of police. Um, from Two Rivers, and so we work with him in terms of trying to provide extra support to our first responders, and certainly the work that you're doing. You know, we have a lot of people that are stepping up to the plate here in DFW to try to offer um, services to our first responders, uh, such as yourself, and so it's, it's awesome to see uh, people like you and others that are stepping up and offering their unique programs and services to help our first responders. It's certainly, I mean, we, all, we both know this too shall pass, but it's the uncertainty of when. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think we just need to be creative as we consider all of these populate, uh, populations and just come up with new and unique ways to address these um, needs because there's always gaps in services, and the, and the longer things go on, and the more our world um, evolves and changes, new issues develop. I mean, there will continue to be gaps in services because something something will just get worse, or or something will happen where where we just have that need. And so, I think being creative and and trying to think outside of the box to address all of these populations is it's just ongoing. It's it's something we need to kind of constantly think about and, and try to improve and come up with uh, new and unique ways to address some of these issues. Well, you know, kind of flip back to we were talking about former felons a little bit earlier. Can you imagine you, you do your crime, you do your time, you come out, and you're really wanting to live your life, and you come out in a time of total chaos and you don't exactly. have a family member to pick you up. You don't have anybody there waiting for you with open, loving arms. How difficult would that be? Yes, and I found that to be the case more often than not um, with the population that I uh, worked with. More often than not, uh, even when I was working inpatient uh, hospital, a lot of those um, persons that I was treating would come in on pretty much a monthly basis because their family had abandoned them and they didn't have a place to stay. 
So, I mean, you know, the inpatient hospital was sort of a, you know, I say this tongue in cheek, but it was, it was like, well, they had a place to stay and at least, you know, a roof over their head and a, you know, a, a meal to eat. But I mean, so many of them just didn't have families to go to. And then when we would discharge them, they'd go to a street corner and still no place to, to, to call home. Um, and so it would be easy to get very hopeless, uh, very depressed. Um, certainly, you know, if you don't have a family, you may not have transportation. If you don't have transportation, how are you going to make it to your parole or probation meetings? And then let alone not having a job to even pay for parole or probation. I mean, it's just a never-ending battle. And then you add this COVID-19 on top of that. <laughs> and, it, you know, honestly, if it were me, I think I'd rather just stay where I was because I have I have a sense of normal. You know, that's mm-hmm. what's been so hard for me with the, with the COVID-19. I can't get up and go to the gym. I can't see my clients. I can't even go to church on Sunday. Nothing right. is normal. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then you add to that, like you say, you know, if, if, if that's all you've known, you know, you, you have those that have been in prison for a number of years. They may kind of, they're institutionalized when they come out. Uh, they don't know anything differently. I mean, the world has changed. Um, and now you're telling me that if I scratch my face, I may die. <laughs> so, yeah. um, yeah. So it's, it certainly is interesting times. And, you know, with your, you know, you've been involved with, with mental health for a long time and you've been involved at that clinically significant level. Um, and you've seen a, a lot of people with addiction and, and people coming out of the sex industry. It, you just wonder, I mean, because now with social isolation, even if they wanted to go to work, they couldn't or they shouldn't. Right. And how exactly. does that make people feel? I'm sorry. I, I give. Oh, I said, and how does that make people feel? Would make me feel well, pretty yeah. Right. They're, they're more and more depressed. Um, but you know what? It's interesting because the amount of people that are still needing services for their addictions is increasing during this time. So I'm seeing an increase in persons that are wanting to admit uh, to a higher level of care. Um, I've seen people that are no longer, it's no longer just Ativan. It's Ativan and a bunch of other opioids. It's no longer just crack. It's, it's crack and meth and, and alcohol. And, you know, my goodness, when I was working inpatient, the amount of 18 to, say, 28-year-olds, that would come in on three, four, and five different drugs at a time. And we would basically have to, you know, quote-unquote, cocktail them, give them the Trinity shot, you know, so that they could sleep it off and, you know, watch them 24-7 to make sure that um, nothing horrible happened. But just just the lack of fear or concern and um, just the increase in anxiety and depression to the point that they're using not just one or two drugs but multiple drugs at a time. They're self-medicating. And honestly, mm-hmm. that, that's how I believe addiction starts is, you know, it's, I don't think there's anybody out there walking the street saying, I wanted to become addicted to this. I am proud to be an addict. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. 
I could mm-hmm. start with self medicating, trying to get by. I got to get to work. If I don't, if I don't calm down and get to work, I'm going to lose my job. You know, so it starts with a little bit of trying to help yourself, and then it turns into, well, you know better than I do what it turns into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And then, of course, you know what it does to the brain, um, and all the changes that take place within the brain. Um, and, and, and then certainly that just that addictive pattern. Well, you know, you're right because anytime we do something that we like, whether it's our glass of wine or it's our social media or it's that pill, the, the brain starts sending out dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter. And that neurotransmitter is a really feel good neurotransmitter. And so the brain likes that. And when it goes from, you know, I like doing this, this is enjoyable, to, you know what, I want to do this. I want more of it. Those little nerve cells, they get really confused because the more dopamine that brain kicks out, the more it goes from, you know what, I liked it, I want it, now I need it. I need it and I need more of it. And once that starts... It's extremely, it's difficult to stop. It's an organic process that's going on in our brain. You're, you're, you make a good point, and that's certainly something else that family members could look for. Um, I can think of a, a couple that I used to counsel, and um, uh, the wife knew that the husband drank beer, but she never really paid attention to what he was drinking, only to find out that he was drinking a six-pack of beer a night plus half a bottle of wine, and taking Xanax, um, and just, you know, because he was, you know, basically functioning, you know, could still somewhat function, she never assumed that anything was really wrong, thought maybe it was just a couple of beers a night, but once she checked the trash can, she discovered that it was much, much more. You know, and, and then if you approach that person and you present this information that's pretty scary to do because you think, okay, what's going to happen next? Is it going to get worse? Well, and a lot of them will just deny that it's an issue at all. I mean, you and I have certainly seen that happen numerous times where, oh, I don't have a problem. And, you know, if you force that, if you force that it is a problem, I've seen good and I've seen bad. What about you? I guess that's where the interventions take place. <laughs> that's where an intervention is needed, and there's got to be a lot of family coordination. Um, there needs to be a lot of family education because usually in those scenarios there can be an enabler or there can be a lot of codependent relationships taking place. And so it's kind of a sticky situation to have to work through. But um, doing a, you know, really good, solid intervention where you have family and friends and where you are able to actually um, incorporate a lot of uh, trust and education, I think it can go a long way. You make a good point. It really is a family affair. It's, it takes the support and the love of the whole family. Right, right. But it also takes, you know, beautiful boundaries. It takes a lot of boundary work. It takes a lot of understanding, you know, that um, each member may or may not have a role in it. You know, like I said, there there could be a lot of enabling. There could be some codependency. 
uh, you think about the um, family patterns within alcoholism, you know, and the different roles the family members take. I mean, it can be a, um, a rather wicked web to have to work through. And that was a bit of a tongue twister, Lee. <laughs> and you did it very well, Chris. <laughs> Good job. But, you know, you, you touch it on that. Some of that is culture. You know, it's our culture to sit down and drink on a Sunday afternoon. Drink, you know, we start at noon and we drink beer, beer till we fall asleep or we do shots. Or, But there is some, there is some of that ingrained into family culture. Absolutely, and it's generational, too. You'll, you'll definitely see uh, that go back through the generations. I mean, when I, th- I think of one client, and he was Greek, and it was, ju- it was an insult not to b- partake in the drinking. I mean, that goes with, that goes with dinner. Mm-hmm. And I'm not specifying the Greek culture. It's in every culture. It's, Absolutely. Absolutely. Think about the executive that maybe um, has a, you know, a, a formal, formal lunch or, or the, you know, the quote unquote power players that, you know, are accustomed to having a, you know, a drink at, you know, at, at, at a business dinner or something, you know, how it can start um, in, in a seemingly innocuous situation and just develop into uh, the monster that it can become. Boy, you make a really good point because sometimes, you know, you're doing, you're participating in this because you want to engage. You want to, you want to meet those people. You want to get those contacts. And if that means you go out and you have a couple of drinks after dinner, then by golly, that's what you do. Right. And you do it thinking that you're helping yourself move forward. And then in the end, you may look back and say, that was what that's where I started going down because addiction is a brain disease. Some people can can experience things, you know, some people can sit and have one glass of wine, some people can't. So by the time they pay, have one glass of wine, it's they don't stop until they're falling down drunk. It happens far too often, doesn't it? It does. It really does. So kind of switching gears on you, the, it sounds like the police ha- are, are trying to understand the community better. They're trying to understand how to communicate with people that have, you know, mood and, and thought disorders and, you know, certainly personality disorders. That could be very challenging. What have you helped them to understand? Well, we talk a lot. That's actually my favorite subject is to talk about personally, uh, personality disorders, especially narcissism. Um, I, I came from a, um, in my past, had some involvement with a narcissist, and actually it turned out to be quite a useful learning tool. But, um, you know, sometimes we just talk about even people that are, you know, um, some of the famous people, you know, within the community or people that were, you know, famous people from the past to kind of put a name to it um, and to identify, you know, um, for example, the Hitlers of the world, you know, um, personality disorders uh, to an extreme. <laughs> um, and when you can start to put a name and a face to it and a connection, it, it's, it is easier to understand 
But well, we talk know, a lot about personality disorders, yes. You make a really good point. When you can put a name to something and maybe even have a phone number, you've given us such great information on the show. And I'm sure there are people saying, is she real? Can I mean, I, in two minutes, tell me how people can reach you and, and a little bit more about you. Okay. Well, I'm currently with Acadia Healthcare, and my role is to sort of act as a one-stop shop, uh, provide a concierge kind of white glove service to persons that are needing higher levels of care. And so um, I work with hospitals, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, professionals such as yourself in referring people to treatment. And so I have um, 584 facilities that I work with. Uh, within my Acadia family, and they range from eating disorders to um, mental health primary to uh, child and adolescent facilities to inpatient hospitals, you name it, we've got it. And so in addition to providing those resources, it's going to be based on the best fit clinically, geographically, and financially. But additionally, I need to refer them back out once they're out of treatment to persons such as, uh, such as yourself, um, maybe they need um, some of the uh, services that you provide. They need that brain work. Um, I would refer them out to you, or maybe they need um, EMDR or a psychiatrist or a, a partial hospitalization program. I also provide those wraparound supports, and I often um, refer outside of my family I still have my foot involved with um, the indigent, and so those persons that are maybe uninsured or have Medicare and Medicaid, I have those resources too. Well, for those people that are thinking, this is a lady that I absolutely have to be able to talk to, can, can you give them a, a number to call? Absolutely. My contact number is 469-400-7400. Nine. That's a perfect and can, way to end. Thank you so much for sharing all your information. And again, that number was 469-400-7499. Thank you, Chris. Yes. Thank you, Lee.